This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to a show that is loved in France. Episode 559 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast, nerds. My name is Matt Baum. We're huge in France. We have documented proof. Screw you guys. We don't need you anymore. What do you think of that? (laughs) And I'm the Internet's Joe Patrick. This week, our review spotlight shines on Mark Miller's American Jesus and Al Ewing's Guardians of the Galaxy. After that, we're pouring nerdy-themed cocktails while we review eight more of this Wednesday's new comics during the ludicrous speed round. Then it is up to the THM Sanctum Sanctorum, where we're rapping about our must-read comic picks for next week. And finally, the comic pushers are back with some highly addictive comic product, and this time, they're sidekick stories. But before we introduce Wolverine's new plucky sidekick, Pointy, we better talk about this week's Nerd News. Marvel Comics has announced a new volume of the classic horror title Werewolf by Night from co-writers Taboo of Black Eyed Peas fame. And I'm real sorry, Ben, but the jokes are coming. Yeah. Ben Jackendoff. <laughs> you just know that dude got his ass kicked on the playground. What on earth? <laughs> uh, this Where new- you been? I've been Jackendoff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this news came from their This Week in Marvel podcast, uh, there was an update later on. The artist of the book is Scott Eaton, an artist that we are pretty lukewarm on most of the time. Yeah, It is not going to star the original Werewolf by Night, Jack Russell. What? It's a different one? This is a brand new version of the character, a Native American uh, teen, I guess, named Jake, or young man, they say. Jake Russell. Yes, watch it be Jake Russell. <laughs> the, here's a quote. The new Werewolf by Night will be a young man named Jake who will be dealing with the effects of a family curse while trying to protect his people. Uh, the effects of the story will also be driven by the outcome of the outlawed one-shot. The book will be set in Arizona. Okay. Uh, and it will be told through uh, what Taboo calls a native lens because of my Native American heritage. There you go. All right. I mean, look, I appreciate Taboo, who I don't even like saying that name out loud, but I appreciate him coming in and want to do this. This is not the first comic that he's written. He worked on a Warriors, what was it called? Masters of the Sun. Masters of the Sun, volume one, colon, the Zombie Chronicles. Which was like based off the last completely failed Black Eyed Peas record that did not have Fergie on it. A lot of people are blaming on that. Mm. I don't give a shit about Fergie, so people whatever. love Fergie. So this is obviously not the Jack Russell that we used to know, created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, and Mike Plug, the old werewolf by night, who inherited his lycanthropy from his dad and had relatives with ties all the way back to old school Dracula and Transylvania. Joe, do you think it is good that they are updating Werewolf by Night, or perhaps a better question? Do these old kind of cheesy Marvel horror characters have any place in the modern Marvel U? I mean, I think they have a place in the modern Marvel U, but whether or not modern audiences are interested is a different discussion. I mean, I guess that's kind of where I'm going. Like, do they have any cachet? No. You know, like Marvel's Frankenstein or Werewolf by Night or The Living Mummy. They were silly. I mean, they were kind of silly back in the 70s when they were around because those creators were sort of, I mean, they were trying to tell a horror story, but it was still very superhero. It wasn't so much like the DC supernatural stuff that was just straight up horror ghost stories and yeah whatnot. yeah right exactly they were they had one foot uh, at least werewolf by night had one foot in the superhero world man thing as well they were always crossing over with spider-man and whatnot but yeah i just i don't think that today's audience cares about the original version right and i think the only thing that might get them interested is this name recognition from taboo and even that feels kind of dicey to me. <laughs> From Taboo? You think that's going to pull them in? <laughs> Listen, I'm saying it's the strongest g- 
bullet in their gun. You know, what I just think if you're, I think if you're trying to reach out to Marvel nerds and using the title Werewolf by Night, I don't know if that even draws on anybody anymore. Like this, we're talking about guys that were older than we were that yeah. read this stuff. Yeah, it's true. I came to appreciate it later because it was kind of silly and kind of fun, and that's why I like it. I mean, we couldn't even find a copy of that Masters of the Sun stuff that him and Ben Jackinoff wrote together. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and apparently, from the reviews that I read of it online, it was not good. So I'm not certain why they're I, you returning know to this creative I actually, team. I'm going to correct you on that, because the only place I could find reviews of this graphic novel online were on goodreads.com, and most of the reviews were fairly positive. <laughs> Okay, there were two reviews on Amazon, both were positive. <laughs> I mean, Damien Scott drew it, so it had to have at least been half good. Can you think of any other examples where musicians came in and wrote comics? Obviously, we've got Gerard Way. Yeah, who we love the Umbrella Academy. I mean, like, so, no, it's not on her. I'm not saying this comic book can't be good because the musician is writing it. We've seen that happen. Your boy, Max Bemis. He's not my boy. The Mark Reznicek, the guy from, from the Toadies, uh, came in and did that book with Donny Cates. Or uh, Max Bemis from Say Anything. Sorry, Say Anything. Max Be- your boy yeah, Max Bemis huge, from your I'm a favorite huge band. Say Anything fan. Say Anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Mark Reznicek, I think that's his name. He did that book uh, with Jeff Shaw on art about the guy who only had superpowers when he was wasted. Yeah, that was fun. That book was great. It was really uh, good. I'm, and again, I'm not DMA, saying... Uh, DMZ? DMC? DMC. Daryl McDaniels? <laughs> yeah, Daryl McDaniels. Not DMX. <laughs> no, DMX hasn't written any comics. Uh, but DMZ, <laughs> DM, DMC put out those graphic novels. We reviewed the first one. It was pretty good. It was great. And again, I'm not saying musicians can't do this. I'm just saying... I don't know if Taboo is the guy to put the shot in the arm that Werewolf by Night needs. And we shall see, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Time will tell on this one. From the Not That Ex Machina desk, Oscar Isaac is the great machine. Star Wars Rise of the Skywalker actor Oscar Isaac, he's been in a couple other things too, has signed on to produce and star in Legendary Entertainment's The Great Machine, an adaptation of Brian K. Vaughn and Tony Harris's Ex Machina, according to The Hollywood Reporter Joe Patrick. Why can't they call this movie Ex Machina? I have no idea. I mean, like, really? Well, Matt, uh, you may have missed it, but there was a 2014 movie also called Ex Machina, and it, in fact, won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. I believe that's right. I forgot about that little film. The Great Machine will be written by screenwriters Anna Waterhouse and Joe Shrapnel. Wow. His name sounds like he's a howling commando. I bet Joe Shrapnel was the kind of guy that beat off Ben Jackendoff. (laughs) That beat him off? Uh, I meant beat up, but I guess that accident works. (laughs) Wow. No projected release date has been announced. What do you think about Isaac as your Mitchell 100? Great. I want Oscar Isaac for anything. Yeah, I'm fine with it. He's a stunning actor. I love that he's producing this. It leads me to believe that he has read this, enjoyed it. Anna Waterhouse and Joe Shrapnel are actually a writing team. They are currently working on the sequel to Tom Cruise's Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, shit, I love that movie. (laughs) Live, die, repeat, repeat, or something like that. No way. Well, that's what it's tentatively called. I don't know if that's the title. They also wrote a film called Seaberg which starred Kristen Stewart in 2019 and a movie called race from 2016 about the life of Jesse Owens. So these two have worked a lot together. We haven't seen anything from them yet, but they're up and coming. We'll see. They could be great. I'm hoping for a lot of walk and talk West wing style mixed with superheroics. The script is already fantastic. I mean, I feel like a movie like this basically writes itself. My only complaint, and I know I've said this a lot, my only complaint is I wish this were a TV show so you could flesh out the story. It's too much to do in a movie. It's just too much to do in a movie. That's just it. And I know I realize, like, yeah, this isn't a 200 issue series or anything, but there was so many little character points and small parts of the book that were so important that I don't want to lose. You know what I mean? I totally agree with you. I I just think that the the path that character takes from the start of the book towards the end of the book, it's just too 
vast to squeeze into a, even a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. And even, even if they come out and say, we're doing a trilogy, I still don't think that this has not been announced, but I think coming out of the gate, expecting to be able to tell the story over multiple movies, like this isn't Marvel, you know, they're not going to be able to call their shot. So they have to plan for this to be one movie. I don't think it's going to do the story justice or I'm worried that it won't, I guess I should say. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So we're both excited for obviously Oscar Isaacs in this role, but you know, would be a little better TV show. It's all all about the execution. Uh, They'll throw a ton of money at it. I just, I fear that the story is going to be gutted trying to get it down to a movie length. That's what I'm afraid of. Joe Patrick, breaking news from the X desk. Uh, that might be a radio thing. I don't know. Uh, this April, the X-Men are getting sidekicks in the form of Children of the Atom, a new team of teen mutants with ties to some classic X characters debuting in a new ongoing series. The book will be written by Vita Ayala with art from Bernard Chang. Bernard Chang, uh, some uh, one of his variants came out. The <laughs> It's gonna be a good looking book. Yeah, Bernard Chang's super talented. I we love him. Love dude. Uh, this great. is gonna be a brand new cast of characters that appear to be uh, linked in some way or have similar powers to Cyclops, Angel, Nightcrawler, Marvel Girl, Gambit, great. and maybe more. We don't know the full lineup yet. Uh, this is from Vita Ayala, who credits the idea. Uh, to editor Chris Robinson, she says, my take on it became what would actual kids from our current time be like if they were X-Men, if they were X-Men sidekicks, what would generation Z X-Men be like? And I can tell you what they would be like insufferable. Well, don't we already have some though? I mean, aren't there plenty of young mutants running around to do this? Do we need X sidekicks? Do we? I think that I think that most of the young mutants we have running around today were introduced prior to the labeling of the most recent young generation. Oh, no, definitely. I mean, but they're still that young is my point. Yeah, yeah, I get it. But I mean, I think she's talking about. Focusing more on like a realistic take on that. Current attitude of that generation. Do you want another group of young mutants? Are you into it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't care. I Dawn of X is throwing stuff out there. I'm interested in trying all of it. I'm not going to be here. I'm not going to sit here and go, that's stupid because I I know that there's a plan. There's something weird going on, obviously, because you have characters that have powers that seem to be just like the character they are paired up with. There's a kid that's shooting lasers out of his eyes. There's a kid. uh, We don't even know that they're paired up. They're just charging up cards. Yeah. Um, so is this like a weird Krakoan experiment where that's, they're assigning that's where my powers head, to That's people? where my head went. Like, they made such a big deal about, like, not putting the wrong brain in the wrong body. Right. What if they, and, like, and all that stuff with the chimeras and Mr. Sinister, like, genetically yeah. engineering things. Like, what if somebody is just fucking around and we've got these accidental mutants with powers that don't belong to them? That could be. And we, they've assigned them to these people to like teach them how to use their powers because of whatever happened. If it's something like that, I could see that. That could be interesting. Yeah. An experiment that went wrong or something. And now they're like, well, we've got to help them. Nobody knows better than a, a guy who shoots lasers out of his eyes how to teach a kid that shoots lasers out of his eyes what to do. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that could be interesting. I can see that. I just. I get really hesitant because I feel like every two years we get another group of young mutants that will promptly be forgotten. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's totally yeah. fair. That's my only bitch. I'm not trying to be grumpy old man here. I think the only, mm, no, because I think Nature Girl showed up once or twice. Um, that most recent Generation X relaunch from a couple years back, I think only like one or two characters have ever been seen again since that book ended. <laughs> Truly. Truly. And that that's also not necessarily a bad thing. There's so many other young mutants that I really like that just don't get any love whatsoever, you know, and, and get right, literally yeah. nothing. I mean, we just got Beak and Angel back recently in the pages of New Mutants, and honestly, I didn't really care about it. I liked seeing Beak. <laughs> I mean, it was fun to see him and all. It was just such a break from the book that was going in a different direction with characters that I actually cared about. It was an <laughs> odd diversion, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean... I love Bernard Chang. I love Bernard Chang. So definitely like this creative team. 
I think that this is going to be a good book. I just, I agree that the premise, it's going to have to, it's going to need an interesting hook. Definitely. To differentiate it from the multitude of teen team books we've had from Marvel. Especially when you already have Xbox getting canceled. So, yeah. We'll see. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while getting our first appearance of Sandy and Stripesy up on eBay just in time for Sidekick Fever. So hit us up on the THN Forum's big news section, or better yet, tune in to Cover to Cover Live. We do it every Saturday, and we broadcast on our Facebook page live from 11 to noon Central Standard Time. It's going to be better than this weekend's Royal Rumble, trust me, and you control the content. Yeah. This week we're talking about your favorite nerdy celebrity encounter amongst other things. Call us live at the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894. Or you can click the Call Now button on our Facebook page. If you can't be there live, you can leave us a message at any time at that same phone number, or you can send us an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. There's too many ways to get a hold of us. Damn I it. know. It's almost crippling. It's spotlight review time in the ziggurat, and this week Matt is talking about Mark Miller's latest blasphemy, and I'm talking about Talking Groot's new monthly. Matt, blasphemy always goes first on this show, so lead us off, why don't you? Indeed it does. I am reviewing American Jesus, the new Messiah, number two. Number one came out on Christmas. Get it? <laughs> I get it, <laughs> yeah. Jesus' birthday. So we didn't have a chance to review it. We were too busy talking about our best of the year and whatnot. This is from Image. It's written by Mark Miller with art by Peter Gross. It is 32 pages for $3.99. Here is your solicit. Keep in mind, this is the second issue, but it's not going to spoil anything. Hidden from danger, the Messiah was born and raised behind the walls of a compound, surrounded and worshipped by followers of the church. As she gets older, and with no sign of the powers she was promised, the reluctant teen prophet rejects her parents, God, and the teachings of the church. She breaks free, not knowing the soldiers of the Antichrist are hot on her heels. This is actually the second volume of Miller and Gross's Chosen story from 2009 that was printed at Dark Horse, which was renamed American Jesus for its collected printing at Image. Got that? Okay. They probably did this to keep everything in order with Miller's Netflix deal as the first volume is being made into a Netflix show right now. I don't know. For those who missed it, the first American Jesus followed a 12-year-old boy who finds out he is the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, here to prepare humanity for the upcoming revelation. It was a wild story in which we saw Jody, the kid in question, dealing with his new powers in a world where some hate and fear him, while others think he's the real shebang. And it's this got the world's most obvious twist ending. <laughs> In the new volume, we meet a couple in the 70s who happen to have a baby girl after a virgin birth and a dream in which God tells mom her mission is to give birth to baby Jesus. After giving birth, the two join a religious doomsday cult that very much believes her daughter, Catalina, is the new messiah along with just about every other religious conspiracy you can possibly find on the internet today. Unlike the previous volume and Jody, Catalina doesn't seem to have any powers and does not believe in anything the cult she grew up in is selling her parents. Miller is building a mystery here with an obvious collision course for these two characters that sees them growing up in two very different backgrounds. Gross's art is very thin line and deceptively simple. Imagine Jeff Lemire with better point of view and more detail. His New York illustrations are amazing and almost seem too detailed for the simplified character work. Now, I say simplified, but Gross manages to make each character unique and convey real intensity with his thin line. It has been quite a while since I read The Chosen. I actually revisited the first volume when I realized this was a renamed volume two, <laughs> but I'm still on board and I love the conspiratorial lunacy Catalina is involved in compared to what Jody was dealing with with volume one. I feel like this is going to go to an interesting place and it's not necessarily going to be the revelation end of the world that both sides seem to think it might. I'm giving this a buy it. I mean, I liked it. Uh, I, I think that you're giving Mark 
Miller a lot more credit for subtlety than he deserves. Um, the end of his books typically end with like the most ham fisted fuck you message, like the end of wanted. Um, sure. The end of the first, uh, uh, the end of the first volume of chosen, uh, the big twist is revealed when the, uh, quote unquote Messiah who has been telling his story in flashback the whole time ends the story by saying, and then when my father whipped out his five pronged cock and started to rape me, that's when I learned that I was the son of the devil. <laughs> like, okay. All right. Great. Thanks. And that's like literally the last page of American Jesus volume one. I, um, I just almost wonder if that is the case though, or he was setting up something more just based on no sort of way, man. That book came out like 15 years ago. 2009 yeah it came out a long time ago uh, i don't know there, there's so much here that they're setting up with like the way the cult thinks the world is being run and stuff like that it, that it, it almost feels like a red herring but i mean we'll see, see. It's i could funny, be wrong it's funny to me that you read that you read them as a cult i didn't like i understand that it's very cultish with like the guns and the gated community and all that but like the guy telling the girl that he rescued her from a birthing farm that was going to be a mass, like, sacrifice to Satan and shit. Yeah, but, I mean, <laughs> we're, this is a world where there is some sort of satanic conspiracy. So at least some of that's got to be true. They're, <laughs> they're not, like, hinting that maybe there's a, there's a conspiracy. There is a conspiracy. They are setting up a lot of stuff, but also this issue ends with a message at the bottom that says to be concluded. I like the point of view of the Catalina character that was like, this is bullshit. Listen I did to what like you that. people I, are saying. I did find it refreshing that Catalina was not buying into it at all. Uh, right. I really like that tactic. Um, I love Peter Gross very much. You called his artwork simple, um, but then also overly detailed and in, in, uh, not as a, and not as a negative, but, but that's what I really appreciate about his work. He's got this, like when he does very complex backgrounds, they almost have like a fine woodcut yes. quality to them. Like if you look yeah, back at absolutely. the unwritten and, uh, the dollhouse family, probably Lucifer, which is a, I never read that series, but I'm sure it's there too. Um, oh, it's absolutely there. His characters do have kind of simple features, but his backgrounds are lush. Yeah, uh, it's it's he draws human forms almost cartoonish, but yeah. not in more of a Jeff Lemire kind of cartoonish. Not so much like a uh, you know Saturday morning cartoon, if you will. Stylized is what you're trying to say. Yeah. I think. I love his work. This book looks really good. I am interested, and I know it sounds like I'm bagging on it, but um, I just I, like. When it got to the when I got to the end and it said to be concluded, I'm like, well, <laughs> let's see how he handles this. Yeah, uh, I'm curious. I, but, I, I mean, they've set up quite a bit for them to meet in the next issue and then either fight it out or fall in love or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm giving this a buy it. I it definitely hooked me in. Mark Miller's satire. I, I, I think it's generous calling it satire, but uh, it doesn't always work for me. But this one I was interested. So I'm giving this a buy it. Joe Patrick, Al Ewing finally has his dream job, and we've got him in the Marvel Cosmic Universe. Tell me about the latest volume of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yes. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, number one from Marvel Comics, written by Al Ewing, art by Juan Cabal. That's Juan with two ends. It's 40 pages for $4.99. Here's your solicit. Once they were a team of misfits. Now they're a family, and they've earned their peace. But the universe is not a peaceful place, and it's only getting worse. The great empires are in turmoil. The rule of law is dead. And amidst the chaos, the gods of Olympus have returned, harbingers of a new age of war, reborn to burn their mark on the stars themselves. Someone has to guard the galaxy, but who will accept the mission? Writer Al Ewing has a bit of a daunting task, relaunching Guardians of the Galaxy just as one event ends and the lead-in to the next one begins. But I think he's more than up to the task. Following the invasion from the Cancerverse in Annihilation Scourge, yeah, that happened. Oh, uh, yeah. Because nobody read it. <laughs> no, and it was good. I really liked no, it. No, it wasn't that good, no. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, of course, other recent events. The universe is in shambles, and as the Kree and Skrull empires go through a major transition leading up to empire the gods of Olympus have been reborn as a cosmic force of destruction. 
Rich Ryder, the last of the Nova Centurions, has no choice but to come to the Guardians for help. Unfortunately, after everything that's happened, the Guardians aren't at their best. It's easy to think of the Guardians as just another superhero team, but Ewing reinforces the fact that they are a family, first and foremost. One that's gone through some serious trauma, and not every member of the family is ready to rush headlong towards almost certain death again so soon. Ewing takes the time to give us insight into the group's individual characters. His rich writer is a nearly broken man, driven to the point of exhaustion after an endless cycle of deaths and rebirths and crises. Peter Quill is suffering a crisis of conscience, unsure if he deserves to sit this one out with the woman he loves. Rocket is full of renewed confidence after cheating death. Marvel Boy is a cocky one-man army and a welcome addition to the cast. I love was, Marvel Boy. He was so great in this. My one you, wish exploding is that, fingernails. Get over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The page where he the page where they make his introduction is so great. He's like, I've got acid saliva. I can crawl on walls. I make my own physics. <laughs> yeah. uh, my one wish is that we could learn more about Moon Dragon and Phyla who are not the characters we might remember from past volumes. These are two alternate universe refugees that just sort of showed up one day. I don't even remember when it was. It may have they been two shunted, volumes ago. They got shunted out of their reality. They had nowhere to go and they got shunted out because their reality was destroyed. Right. And so yeah. they've been on the periphery taking part in adventures, but they haven't really been fleshed out at all since. Not really. I mean, they, they are who we think they are. They're just, you know, different reality versions. But not really. Like, because in this one, Phyla says, like, in my universe, I was Captain Marvel. Mm -hmm. In our universe, Phyla was Quasar. Are you mean our universe is Quasar? Our Phyla universe is Phyla, who died, was Quasar. Yeah. Gotta be, we need, like, a fucking whiteboard. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Juan Cabal comes to the series fresh off his run on Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man, and his work here is spectacular. He's capable of delivering some incredible page layouts, and he's equally adept at cosmic spectacle and quiet character moments. He's got this ability to render expressive faces, and I thought it was reminiscent of the legendary Kevin Maguire, who is famous Ooh, for his call. faces. Very good call. I get annoyed whenever Marvel uses a creative team switch as an excuse to relaunch with a new number one, but I do have to admit that this felt like a fresh new start for the Guardians. And I have been excited to see what Al Ewing can do in the Marvel Cosmic Sandbox. He's off to a great start so far. I'm giving this a buy it. I think restarting comics with number one and new creative teams is the new modus operandi at Marvel. So get used to it, buddy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's been going on for some time, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I totally agree. Juan Cabal was so good on this book. And there was like, there's some really cool sprawling scenes and a great last page that got me really excited. And I love the Greek gods. I love the Marvel Greek gods. I love them in space. Hercules, Prince of Power by Bob Layton back in the day. I can't. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite cosmic books of all time. And it is dumb, mind you, but I love it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, Juan Cabal had a scene where uh, Rich Ryder, Nova, is talking about what happened to him. And he's just like, hey, man, I died. He's like crumpled. He's crumpled yeah, he's into like, a ball on the floor. He's like, I straight up died and I came back and it fucked me up, dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, and it was just a really touching scene. I love that Al Ewing, who we've been gushing over on Incredible Hulk for what, three years now? I don't even know. Uh, Immortal Hulk. Pardon me, Immortal Hulk. I love that he can go from super high sci-fi psychological horror to these really, really nice little character moments. And this is something that, like, as much as I had fun with Donnie Cates' Guardians of the Galaxy, it was very slam-bang fun. There right. wasn't a whole lot of, like, character growth going on in there. And I think if anybody can flesh out Phylon Moondragon a little more, Al Ewing's going to be the guy to do it. I'm giving this a huge buy it. This was the best comic book I've read this week. Oh, wow. So that is a double buy it for American Jesus Volume 2 and a double buy it for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Something Number 1. We'll post our written reviews over at twoheadednerd.com. So baby group fans have a place to fight it out with baby Yoda fans. But we need to know 
what you nerds thought of these comics too. So call us this weekend, THN, cover to cover. I just told you how a few minutes ago. At its new time, 11 a.m. to noon Central Standard Time. Hot take. Baby Groot, cuter than Baby Yoda. No way. Fuck off. Yep. I said it. Nope. I said it. Hot take. Before we leap into the ludicrous speed round, let's turn it over to the official THN bartender, Justin Robert Fletcher, to introduce the cocktail of the week, brought to you by O'Courant on the Benson Strip, right here in Omaha, Nebraska. Take it away, Mr. Fletcher. (laughs) Um, So this drink this week is called Calm Like a Bomb. Um, It is dedicated to the best sidekick in podcast comic history. Wonderful Matt Ball. See, I thought it was my show. But no, was, no, no. Apparently, everybody that's knows not the, that Joe Patrick <laughs> is the hero, and then you're just the sidekick. I see. Yes. Right. Everybody looks at the hero for the answers, and the sidekick just bitches yes. about everything else. Um, so this is uh, kind of a, I guess, a play on a Long Island iced tea. So there's uh, rum, tequila, uh, Aviz, which is uh, this really cool aperitif. It's dry vermouth, it's pastis, uh, simple syrup, lemon, and then black tea concentrate. Um, so it sounds really abrasive like Matt Bomb, but in the end, it's just really fluff. It's, it's a lot of fluff, and it's a really easy drink. Um, it's called Mad World at Akron, if you want to try one. Um, lemon juice, too. Did I say lemon juice? I didn't hear lemon juice. I don't know if I said lemon juice, lemon but juice it's in, in there. there yeah, there's some in there. There's a lot of shit in here. But this is really good. I made this, even though it's for you and named after you, this is actually for Joe, since he's the real brains behind the bunch. <laughs> I know he likes a really easy, yummy drink, so this is for him. He is a crybaby. Yeah. I'll let him know. Yep. Now, with drink in hand, join us as we review eight more of this Wednesday's new comic during the Ludicrous Speed Round! Ludicrous Speed! Go! Ghostbusters, year one, number one from IDW. Longtime series creators Eric Burnham and Dan Schoening focus on Winston Zedmore this issue, filling in the time around his hiring which was glossed over pretty quickly in the original movie. It really was. <laughs> Shoning, they even kind of reference it in the book. They're like, how long was it between the time you got hired and the time you went ghost, ghost busting? And he was like, two days. <laughs> Shoning's super cartoony art suits the property well, and he's also able to render even the most obscure side characters from the film instantly recognizable. I'm looking at it, I'm like, holy shit, it's the Archbishop. Holy shit, it's the hotel guy. (laughs) It's the same old story. I check in with IDW's Ghostbusters series once or twice a year, and I have a surprisingly good time when I do. Ghostbusters year one, number one, gets a buy it. Think about that movie, though. Zedmore, like, was fighting Zool, I'm going to say, what, a week later? (laughs) Maybe. I mean, there's a montage in there somewhere, but yeah, maybe. (laughs) Red Sonja, Age of Chaos, number one from Dynamite. The Chaos comic characters of the 90s continue their reign of terror slash vengeance slash other violent stuff, and this time they are after the amulet of Kulam Gath, the sorcerer nemesis of Red Thonia. Jonathan Lau draws Sonia with some crazy messy hair and braids, and you know what? I don't hate it. It's hard to believe the she-devil with a sword conditions daily in ancient Hyrcania, you know what I mean? <laughs> Eric Burnham mainly sets up the story here with the embodiment of death. Spoiler. Wait, Eric Burnham from Ghostbusters? Eric Burnham. Hey. Spoiler. She's a sexy waif model with great legs. Inviting the whole Chaos cast to steal Gath's necklace from a local museum. Evil Ernie cracks some unfunny jokes. Purgatory and Jade want to become gods. I thought they were both vampires. I don't fucking know. Chastity, who, by the way, has the same exact hairstyle and hair color as Punk Mambo. I'm going to argue, same character. Somebody stole something from somebody. We need to research this. No, Chastity's not shows, a punk rocker, though. Did you look at what I tweeted earlier? No. It is exactly the same. They are a mirror image. I mean, I believe I will, you. I'll show you again. She shows up with Bad Kitty to stop them. Finally, we get the obligatory Here Comes Red Sonya scene to set up the next issue. For fans of Chaos Comics, this has to be much better than what they're used to read, but not quite as good as some of Dynamite's other Red Sonya stuff. I've never particularly been interested in the Chaos Cadre, but I did like Leah Williams' new take on Chastity. As far as Red Sonia crossovers go, this one is fine, and at least it seems to tie the characters into a story that makes some sense. 
giving it a skip. Does Robert E. Howard have any villains other than Cool and Gath? Because that dude is in Savage Avengers right now fighting Conan. Well, he was around a lot. I mean, like, he was a big, bad sorcerer dude. He was, he was kind of his Skeletor, if you will. Okay. I can sell you a body, number two for IDW. Now that's a title. It is. DeFour creator Ryan Ferrier and Short Order Crooks artist George Combatis unite for a story about Denny Little, a washed-up TV psychic who has actual powerful supernatural abilities, <laughs> specializing in reverse exorcism. Do you want to be reunited with a deceased loved one? Denny will put their soul into a spare body for a modest fee. Whoa, that sounds but irresponsible. <laughs> when he fails to resurrect a young psycho's mob boss father, he finds himself in fear for his life. Combatis' art is pretty great. Uh, the script, though, is trying so hard to be funny, and uh, very few of the jokes actually land. Uh, the, the premise is great. The premise is great. Uh, the characters act very bizarre, and I understand we're talking about, like, a psychic, a comic book with psychics and ghosts and shit, but no, the characters act weird. And Denny is extremely hard to root for, especially when he does stuff like sending a morgue full of mob mobster cadavers to murder his pursuers. Oh. He just reanimates a bunch of dead mobsters and says, go murder those guys. Are they bad guys? Well, yeah, but yes. It's morally gay. It's, look, this is, it's a moral gray area. Well, I mean, come on, they're dead. They're not doing anything. Give me a break. It's kind of a fun concept, but I Can Sell You a Body falls down a bit in the execution. I'm giving it a skim it. Atlantis Attacks, number one from Marvel. Ex-young hunky Hulk Amadeus Cho, still green, but going by brawn now, and his new agents of Atlas are investigating a mystery from the pages of Swordmaster number five and six, which I don't think anybody read. I know I didn't. Pan-Asia <sighs> seems to be an Asian version of Krakoa with portals to every Asian city and neighborhood on Earth. But there's uh, also yes, like... that got set up in the War of the Realms tie-in series. Okay. There's also like a city in the middle as well where people that hide out. And there's a nasty Atlantean secret that's powering the city. Namer shows up and he's pissed as always. Writer Greg Pak has a nice script here that deals with refugees, animal cruelty, even if said animal is being a jerk. And there's a fun return on the last page. Ario Anandito is really good on art, but not reinventing the wheel with this crossover or anything. His panels are detailed, action-packed, and his face work is very solid. I haven't been following this new Agents of Atlas much, but I didn't feel lost, and I'm glad Amadeus Cho has a job. With that said, there's a lot going on at Marvel right now, and these characters really haven't had a chance to shine. I don't know if bringing Namor into the picture is the answer either, but that doesn't mean this was bad. It was fine. It was borderline clever, but I need more than Atlantis attacking again to care about the new agents of Atlas and giving it a skim. I think there must be some strategy at play with Marvel's push behind these like new pan-Asian characters. Please, 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 China buy our comics. Yeah, but I mean, I just don't <laughs> think that the, I just don't think that whatever plan they're using is firing in the United States. Yeah. Because I don't hear anybody talking about it. No, and the sales certainly aren't there. So go get them, guys. Once in Future, number six from Boom. Kieran Gillen and Dan Mora deliver a satisfying conclusion in what was supposed to be a series finale. Instead, Once in Future is now an ongoing, and this first arc establishes Duncan and his Graham as the only thing that stands between the British Isles and supernatural terror. Mora's art is out of this world amazing, thanks in part to the otherworldly colors of Tamara Bond villain. The story itself seems just a bit hurried, but I think that's because the upgrade from mini to ongoing necessitated the last minute addition of scenes that set up future stories. Oh, I guarantee it. Uh, regardless, Once in Future number six is a great read, and it's been one of my favorite new series of the past year. I'm giving it a huge buy it. It is fantastic stuff. The Visitor, number two, from Valiant. Two issues in, and writer Paul Levitt's Visitor story is only sorta, kinda coming into focus as to what is even going on. Near as I can tell, this is the story of the architects of New Japan, but a terrorist is looking to foil their plans. Or are they? Levitt's packs each issue with a ton of dialogue for the side characters while revealing almost nothing about The Visitor, and after two issues, I find myself losing interest. MJ Kim's manga-inspired art is excellent, and the colors by Ulysses Ariola, that's a 
real name as well, make this a gorgeous read, but the script spends so much time with discussion that almost reveals what some characters might be doing, while another character is frustrated that she doesn't know what those characters are doing. All the while, the visitor seems to be a ninja version of Doctor Who, who hasn't really done anything cool yet. The concept here seems to be very high, but rather than getting to the point or even developing a mystery, Levitz is writing like he's being paid by the word. I need a little more action here, or perhaps an intro to the main character would be nice before issue three. I'm giving it a skim it. Folklords, number three from Boom. Matt, Kent, and Smith flip classic fantasy tropes on their head with this tale of a teenage boy from a fantasy world that has visions of our own world. In the short time Ansel has been on his forbidden quest to find the Folklords, he's already risked death by defying his village leaders and been betrayed by his best friend. Oh, damn. This issue features a fun spin on the legend of Hansel and Gretel with wonderful art by Matt Smith. Folklords is a great twist on the fantasy genre with a focus on the hidden power of stories very similar to what Once in Future is doing, but in a much more, this is a bit more heady and literary minded. Yeah. Um, it's, but it's, it's also great. I'm giving it a buy it. Folklords. Wonder Woman 750 from DC. If you are looking to drop 10 bucks on an open love letter to Wonder Woman, look no further. I admit, I haven't kept up with her Year of the Villain storyline, but this was a nice send-off by Steve Orlando that actually ties up a lot in very few pages. Gail Simone writes a very sweet story of Diana having dinner with her family and getting to be human for a change. The rest was a bit of a mixed bag, but I didn't dislike any of it. Mariko Tamaki's story only suffered from being a little too short. The story after that had a few too many internet buzzwords for me, and Riley Rosmo kind of drew Wonder Woman like she was Roman Reigns minus the mustache. It was bizarre looking. <laughs> she was massively macho. <laughs> but Scott Snyder tells the story of Wonder Woman's first appearance, concreting her as DC's first hero oh, with shit. a surprise narrator. Dude. And I gotta say, it hit me in all the feels. It oh, was dude. So good. That last panel got me. Got Damn. me good. <laughs> Yes, it is a $10 comic, but this was a great Wonder Woman read that sets up the future and the past for Diana very nicely. I'm giving this a fire. Clonk. That's your ludicrous speed round, and clonk is the sound of Felicia Hardy using her bad luck powers to cause a minor Vespa accident, as seen in the pages of Jed McKay and Travel Foreman's Black Cat number one. This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by JD Gotta Catch via the THN Facebook fan page. That's right. It's a thing. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, write it on the front of your Vespa and crash in the ziggurat, or you can post it to any of our social media accounts, or you can send an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. And hey, you want to help stock the ziggurat bar? Click on our donate now button. Buy us a bottle of booze. Why don't you? Or hey, you can even just buy us a drink. We'll even mention you in the cocktail of the week segment. It's time to visit the THN Sanctum Sanctorum where this week we're both wearing replica Jordi LaForge visors. How are these supposed to help reveal the secrets of next week's comments? I can't even fucking see in this thing. They're not. I'm just super fired up for the Picard premiere. Matt, you have the con. My pick for next week is Protector, number one from Image. It's written by Simon Roy and Daniel M. Benson with art by Artyom Tarkanov. No way I'm saying that right. Jason Wordy and Hassan Otsmani Ilahau. They're just wow. trying to make me look like a racist. That's all yeah, they're doing. Boy. Right? Mission accomplished. 32 pages for $3.99. Here is your solicit. From the people I just announced comes a sci-fi adventure equal parts Conan the Barbarian, Mad Max, and The Expanse. Of all the tribes that dwell in the hot ruins of far future North America, the Hudsonian reign supreme. But even they fear and obey the godlike Devas. When the Devas warn of an old world demon in the conquered city of Chicago, Hudsoni war chief First Knife decides to deal with the threat personally. That now, is a sounds... lot of made up dune bullshit sci-fi <laughs> yes. words. It sounds totally bonkers. And the art 
is just as whacked out. This looks completely crazy. This is Simon Roy, who worked on the Profit relaunch that we loved. He is a crazy man. This is going to be absolutely insane. I'm super excited for it. Joe Patrick, what's your pick for next week? Next week, I am looking forward to Amazing Spider-Man colon Daily Bugle number one from Marvel Comics, written by Matt Johnson with art by Mac Chatter. Gotta love me some Mac Chatter. <laughs> it's 40 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. The journalist must speak truth to power, whether or not it's wielded responsibly. Helmed by Peter Parker's mentor, Robbie Robertson, the Daily Bugle staff is at last chasing stories that matter. And in a city under Mayor Wilson Fisk, keeping the public informed is as essential as it is dangerous. Weaving between events in Amazing Spider-Man and Daredevil, Matt Johnson and Mac Chatter are following a lead into Kingpin and Spider-Man's past that will change the way you look at the web slinger now and as his story continues. Matt Johnson. Uh, Matt Johnson wrote, uh, there was a Vertigo graphic novel years ago called Incognigro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Matt Johnson did that. Uh, he also did some Hellblazer spinoff stuff. Um, Mac Chatter worked on Black Panther and the Crew and uh, a book called Briggs Land, which I think you reviewed on the show. Yes, and I very much enjoyed. He is very talented. Uh, I am a sucker for supporting cast comics. Give me your Gotham Centrals. Give me your uh, Metropolis uh, special crime. Uh, the major crimes unit where they like they were just regular I cops with like huge laser guns. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. The and it had terrible, terrible Turpin with the bowler hat. Uh, <laughs> who was a Jack Kirby character. Um, yeah, I love it. I love the Daily Bugle. I love the Daily Bugle supporting cast. I am excited for just I feel like. Spider-Man's got one of the best supporting casts maybe ever in comics. And I feel like the Daily Bugle has really been sidelined. Definitely. Uh, and Definitely. so I just, I'm glad to see him in the spotlight. I don't know if this book's going to be any good, but I'm excited to check it out. The THN trade of the week goes to Punisher Kill Crew, the trade paperback. I'm going to say Joe picked this. Marvel Comics, it's written by Jerry the fuck Duggan. does that mean? <laughs> with art by Juan Ferriera. It's 128 pages for $17.99, and here is your solicit. The War of the Realms may be over, but for the Punisher, the conflict never ends. To combat Melkith's invasion, Frank Castle raised his own personal army. In fact, I remember reading this and really liking it. Yes. <laughs> so shut I your mouth. I, yeah, I think I gave the first issue a buy it. And now, in the war's aftermath, they have some scores to settle. The Punisher has stolen Thor's flying goat and is traversing the Ten Realms on a mission. But why is his first stop Counter-Earth? Frank made a promise of vengeance, and he keeps his promises. But a van full of orphans is about to make that vow a lot more complicated. And while Frank has picked up some unlikely allies, can he keep them alive? Featuring the Black Knight, Foggy Nelson, and more in an action epic unlike anything you've ever seen. I've read about Foggy Nelson getting second billing in quite some time. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Punisher Kill Crew is uh the best war of the realms tie-in miniseries it's it amazing fun. it was really fun and yeah. it doesn't just star one of thor's flying goats it's thor's flying goat towing the punisher val battle van <laughs> uh powered by the black bifrost <laughs> was it tooth nasher or tooth grinder i can't remember. uh i don't know irrelevant <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. uh it is one uh it is so much fun and the art by juan ferreira is gorgeous uh it sounds ridiculous you won't regret reading it i promise these are just a few of the comics hitting the new shelves at your local comic shop next week but we want to hear about your must-read picks and about the retainer you had to get for gnashing and or grinding your teeth head over to the thn forums and let us know what you're reading but also Tell us what you'd like to hear us review on the show. And don't forget to pre-order all of your picks. The comic pushers are back, and today they are slinging some highly addictive comic product to you quivering nerd junkies that ought to settle the bugs under your skin, at least for a little while. Today, since the ex-sidekicks are in the news, we're pushing sidekicks stories joey what do you got in that magic sack for these nerds well i picked a couple uh 
as we both did, I assume. We both picked two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my first pick, I'm giving it to Robin Year One, uh, which is written by Chuck Dixon. I don't really like to recommend Chuck Dixon these days, but Look, it is what it is. Chuck Dixon is a terrible person that wrote some great fucking comics. So there's no yeah, way around it. Yeah, you know. You know? Uh, I mean, I don't know if he's a terrible person, but his politics are terrible. Yeah, uh, it's like got Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling, excellent baseball player, terrible fucking guy. <laughs> And again, bad politics. You hey, know? he started a company that made one great video game and then he drove it into the ground. What can you do? Uh, it's got beautiful art by Javier Polito, a very young Javier Polito. Uh, this takes place ostensibly after the events of Batman Dark Victory, which was the sequel to The Long Halloween. Yes. Uh, Dark Victory was basically like it, it, it introduced Robin in like a modern day context. So this is about Dick Grayson's career uh, as Robin the Boy Wonder. He's already established. Um, he's not super. Um, he's he's kind of early on, but not like uh, not like a real newbie. He's he's able to go off on his own and do his own stuff. You know, Batman right. trusts him to do that sort of thing. Um, Two Face is kind of his nemesis. If you look back at classic Robin stories, um, Two Face has always been one of Dick Grayson's earliest arch enemies right um, two-face's whole thing was i'm gonna kill that kid because that's gonna upset batman he went straight for robin so robin year one is uh mostly told from alfred's perspective uh as he kind of deals with um watching dick put himself in danger he's doubting if it was wise for bruce to take him under his wing uh, right. should you be taking this kid into into battle uh there's a scene with commissioner gordon where he's like you're putting this kid in danger and if something happens to him i'm coming after you with the full force of the law it, it, it's a great examination on like the realities of this very cheesy concept the idea yeah. that a grown-ass man would take a kid to fight supervillains. Well, and I think um, that's what Chuck Dixon sent out to do here was like, look, I'm going to dispel that whole myth of, yeah, Robin's a kid in a spandex that Batman took with him. And it's just a silly, stupid, you know, like I comic book idea. And he fleshed it out into no Bruce saw a very talented person in Dick Grayson and trusted him so much that yes, it looks like he's just putting him in danger, but he was training him and he had to see what he could do. Yeah. Uh, and it also, it does, a uh, it does a lot of focusing on the dichotomy between Batman and Robin, the darkness and the light yeah. and how different Definitely. they are. Like they're in the bat cave and Batman's being all stoic and looking at the bat computer. And he's like, I'll take my dinner in the library. I have research to do. And meanwhile, in the background, Robin is like, balancing on the edge of the Batmobile. Right. You know, just like doing like a high wire act <laughs> on the edge of the Batcave. Um it's such a great story. Um it, it is again primarily from an adult perspective, but uh it does a great job shining a light on what it really means to have a sidekick or the role of a sidekick uh in in a modern day. Um you know it's not the golden age anymore. We don't just take it for granted anymore. Javier Polito's art amazing even back then was phenomenal this uh, was the first like javier Polito art that i really remember honestly yeah yeah it's i'm not gonna say it was one his of first the early work but it's definitely early it's uh, it's some of my earliest memories of him as well yeah uh batman uh, pardon me robin year one uh is in print in hardcover right now but there's a new trade version coming in march so oh, if nice. you haven't read it check it out i'm sure it's also available digitally so I was trying to think out of the bat box for my first pick, and I went completely out of that realm. It's kind of hard to get away from the bat box. It when is. You're thinking about it is kicks. very hard because I mean, I honestly, Robin is probably the most famous sidekick in comic books. Yeah. But I, I chose a story called Danger Club from Image Comics. It's available in two trade paperbacks, volume one and volume two. It was written by Landry Quinn Walker with art by Eric Jones, and it is basically this homage to every sidekick you've ever seen in comics. They're all present here. There's definitely a Robin character. There's definitely a Superboy. There's an Aqualad. They're all here in this book. And the storyline is the world's greatest heroes 
all went into outer space to fight this huge enemy and they all got killed. <laughs> like all of them. Basically. Well, I think it was a mystery. I don't know if they I don't know if they knew that they got killed. They just never came back. As far as they know, they all got killed and the super sidekicks are left to basically inherit crime fighting on the planet Earth and it quickly devolves into this Lord of the Flies type situation yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because nobody knows who's in charge and nobody knows the right way to do this. They were all learning. They were all in the process and they're sort of, you get to see like a character that's like a Superboy type character that completely you know, overreacts and goes over the edge trying to be like, well, this is what my guy would do and everyone should follow me because you all respected him. And this Batman Robin type character is like, well, hey, man, you might need to chill out a little bit on some of this, you know. And well, it, it's and, wonderful. And meanwhile, there's also this like conspiracy element to it where they they start to learn more about what may have actually happened to their mentors. Yes. Um, Danger Club is such a good pick. Uh, it it's got a very sweet. Teen Titans kind of uh, inspired by, you know. Yes, and, very much um, so. But it's like a more, it's definitely more adult in Yeah, it's in much nature. more, yeah, yeah. It's the sort of thing that they couldn't do in like a main Teen Titans book, right? No, it's the um, sort of thing they probably pitched to DC and DC went, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely yeah. not. Uh, I loved Danger Club. It took forever to come out. It's a great yeah. read. I love Danger Club. And the art is gorgeous. One? Oh my god, it's so good. And we haven't seen that dude, uh, Eric Jones. Where is he? Yeah, I don't know him at all. He's a crazy talented artist. Joe Patrick, what's your next one? So you talked about um, trying to get out of the bat box, and I thought about doing Flash Year One, uh, which is subtitled "Born to Run." Right. Uh, it it kicked off in uh, the Flash Volume Two, I guess. Uh, number 62 and it was the first issue of that series written by Mark Wade uh, and it kicked off his many years long run but when I was thinking back it's a good story but it's when I was thinking story. but when I was thinking back on it I think my appreciation is more about that's that um, book introducing me to Mark Wade okay you know what I'm saying like it, it's a great story and it is all about like Wally uh, becoming Kid Flash and his relationship mm -hmm. with Barry Allen. It's very good. Yeah. But then I remembered suddenly, uh, apparently I went right back to the bat box <laughs> because, <laughs> well, sort of, because my second pick was Astro City Confession, uh, which is written by Kurt Busiek with art by Brent Anderson. Uh, it was the second, uh, I believe it was the second storyline in the Astro City ongoing. Uh, so it's all about this kid, Brian Kinney, who left his home and came to the big city, and he is uh, working his way into the superhero trade. Uh, he's a busboy by day, and by night, he is Alter Boy, the sidekick of the Confessor. And when you look at this, uh, you'll see, just like every other character in Astro City, um, the Confessor and Alter Boy are very obvious homages oh, to yeah. famous characters, in this case, Batman and Robin. Well, at, through the course of the story, there is this series of killings happening in Shadow Hill, which is sort of like the neighborhood where all the ghost stuff happens, right? Uh, it's yeah, like, it's the spooky supernatural. You don't go there after dark. Their hero is a crazy, is the hanged man. He's terrifying. He looks, he's, he's like a specter kind of. He's so cool. He, I love the hanged man. <laughs> And so there's this series of killings and the heroes just can't solve the case. Meanwhile, there is an alien infiltration happening uh, behind the scenes with these shape-shifting aliens. And while all this stuff is going on, the, the mayor of Astro City is cracking down harder and harder on superheroes. It's like, if you can't stop these killings, I will. And he hired this ridiculous looking mercenary uh, to, to go into uh, this cyborg guy with like runes and shit etched all over right. his robot parts. He was like uh, the 90s extreme like, you know, character. He was like, he reminded, was of, uh, he reminded me of he reminded me of Johnny Blaze when they brought back Johnny Blaze for Spirits of Vengeance. And okay, he had one, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had Definitely. one robot eye and a gun that <laughs> shot fire. Sure. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, there are these secrets. Alter Boy is is noticing these things about his mentor uh, that don't add up. 
and he starts to suspect him of being the killer. And it's got such a great twist when you find oh. out what the deal is with the confessor. It's so good. It's so uh, good. But I just reread it. Uh, I finished it yesterday. It's so good. It's yeah. probably my favorite arc of Astro City. Um, and it's all told from the perspective of Brian, uh, who is Alter Boy. And it just like his doubts, like, did I do the right thing? Yes. Am I living up to my dad's expectations? Right. Or he's Are trying these to even the right questions to be asking, right. you know, like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to prove something to his dead dad. And uh, it, he's got this weird, strained relationship with the confessor who's never even told him his real name. Uh, it's it's so good. It's such a great hero sidekick story. Not to mention incredible art by Brent Anderson. Brent Anderson. Uh, God, he, he is a legend and his art is, it's very old school, uh, yeah. very like heavy inks kind of painterly, but it, it's wonderful. It's so wonderful. It is not in print. It is currently out of print, but it is, is available on. That is ridiculous. It is a crime. It is though currently available on Comixology. There you go. Matt Bomb, close us out. My second pick goes to two of my favorite sidekicks, Falcon and Bucky, in the pages of Ed Brubaker's Captain America. This was Captain America Trade Paperback, Volume 2, Death of Captain America is what it's called. The storyline is called Burden of Dreams, and this takes place right after the events of Civil War. Cap has been killed. Sam has signed on with Tony Stark's side and has basically turned over his ID to the government. Bucky has been discovered and he's basically been saved. This is after the Winter Soldier as well. He's been deprogrammed, but he's still wanted for a lot of crimes. And Tony Stark comes to him and says, here's what you do. Here's how you make up for everything. You become Cap now. And Bucky's like, no way, absolutely not. And he goes to talk to Sam about it and says, can you believe that they would even ask me? And Sam basically says, I can't think of anyone better to take this job. And it is this incredible redemption story where Bucky is acting as Cap and knows in any situation he's in, I could kill that guy, I could kill that guy, I could kill that guy. But he keeps thinking Steve would not do that. And I'm not trying to live up to Steve. I'm trying to be better than Steve because I owe that to him. And Sam is sort of there in the background helping. It's still very much Cap and Falcon, but it's a whole different dynamic because it's Cap and Bucky together. And the storyline is just wonderful. After Brubaker ripped our guts out with the death of Cap, which was an incredible issue, this following storyline was so good and just maintained how wonderful that series was. Steve Epting and Butch Geis are on the art here. I forgot how much I loved this, and I went back and I read. This was Captain America 31 through 36, and it doesn't go real well for Bucky as Cap. <laughs> but Not he's in the beginning. Trying, no, but he's trying so hard, and people don't trust him because they're like, no way, we saw Cap die on TV. Who the hell is this guy? And Bucky doesn't trust himself. The only person that does truly trust Bucky and keep him going is the Falcon, and it's just a wonderfully written story of two characters trying to deal with the death of their best friend. Oh, I loved this. Are we really calling this a sidekick story though? They were both sidekicks of Cap. Cap and the Falcon, Cap they and were Bucky. Sidekicks Give me a break. Of Cap like decades ago. They're still sidekicks. Get out of here. Come on, you're telling me Cap and Falcon, Cap and Bucky? I'm Get out of here. <laughs> you, I'm saying if you wanted to classify the Falcon as a character, you are not going to call him a sidekick. I'm saying these are two sidekicks that were moved to the major leagues after the guy that they were sidekick for was killed brutally and trying to deal with that. It was an I think that they were sidekick story. already in the major leagues. Nah, Falcon was still his backup. You know he was. There was even a series called Cap and Falcon like six months before this that was running. So <laughs> yeah, but they but they were partners, man. That's different. Partners. Yeah. Yeah, that's why Falcon's name came second, because they were partners, right? It's alphabetical. <laughs> well, those are some of our favorite sidekick-centric stories, but hey, there's got to be a lot of them out there. We want to know what you sure. think. Hit us up on the forums. Hit us up on the, on the fan page. Shout at us at Twitter. Let us know what we forgot. I there's forgot about good. Danger Club. 
There's got to be a good Arsenal story out there where he's like, you know, shooting heroin into his nub and like holding a dead cat, thinking about his kid and stuff, right? I mean, it's got to be something like that. Oh, no. <laughs> Excelsior. Oh. That is it for THN 559, and I might just OD on heroin rather than even think about that Arsenal storyline anymore. Joe Patrick, why don't you ask these kids a new question of the week? Man, my nubs itch just thinking about it. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> this Who wrote that? Who wrote James that? Robinson. That's well, right. no. James? Wait, no. Uh, JT Kroll. Yes. JT Kroll wrote that. That's right. I don't remember. Uh, James Robinson is definitely responsible for the minis, uh, for Cry for Justice. He did something that put Arsenal in that place. And that's definitely. what put, and the, and then that storyline where he cradles the yes. dead cat is called uh, The Rise of Arsenal, I think. And that was JT Kroll. And that thing is a piece of shit. And if I recall correctly, JT Kroll wrote some of the worst Stormwatch comics ever written as well. But I would have to look that up. JT uh, so. Kroll was a blemish on the uh, on the record of comics, and he has faded <laughs> away. JT, I'm sure you're a very nice person. This week's question was submitted by me. I want to know all about your brushes with nerdy fame. Not necessarily that time you bought tickets to a specific convention just so you could meet Walter Koenig in, uh, at uh, Star Trek Con. Unless uh, you've got a great story for that. But if you've got a great story, yeah, great. Let us have it. Uh, but preferably, I want to know about a time you just happened to meet a creator or a nerdy celebrity in the wild. And as always, we are in need of question of the week suggestions, so... Send them to me, you beautiful babies. Yeah, maybe like creator that came on and like took a crap directly into your comic book. That'd be a good one. If you're new to this show and you're a relative of JT Kroll and you're sick of listening to us bash him, I assure you, you just haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN and our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like our man on the streets, Mr. Damon Chan. I'm sure he's got nice things to say about JT Krill, right? I'm sure he does. He probably loved his fathom work. Yeah, yeah, maybe. (laughs) I'll bet he did. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Morgan Faisant de Champchenel. Champchesnel. Champchesnel. Regardless, I picture him wearing like, you know, a feather in his hat and like a wig. He's wearing <laughs> you know, a, ber- a he's got a beret on for sure. He's a fancy French royal, right? That's right. He is a new listener that took the time to send us an extremely flattering love letter all the way from France. What a sweet guy. His likes include supernatural superhero teams, our stupid voices, like literally when we make voices. And randomly shouting French words in the middle of conversation. Yeah, I really like that he just accepted our racism and he was like, back it! <laughs> Word to you, Morgan. We really appreciate the support. Matt stepped on my baguette line, but that's okay. You get it. Fromage! Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just rub his fromage all over them. This is the Two-Headed Nerd signing off. That's just unsanitary. From under cheese.